agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government has the government love. The government has the government love. The government Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a professor of political science at Northern Kentucky University. I'm joined today by my conservative counterpart, Cleveland area attorney and defender of freedom, Jay Carson. Hey, good morning, Mike. Hey, Jay, how are you doing this morning? I'm doing. I'm doing good. I, I, I we just recorded our our midweek um, show, and that was that was a ton of fun. Yeah, it was the, the second time we we did that listener choice, listener participation thing. And, and yeah, I I thought it would work out well. I hoped it would. I said it could be a, you know, disaster, a Hindenburg-like proportions, but that's totally not been the case. It's always like a pleasant surprise to me when things work out even better than my optimistic hopes for them. But yeah, this is, it's been our second one and I'm, I, I had a blast and I guess you did too. And I think the folks who were part of it did. So yeah, I'm looking forward to doing more of them. And of course, we have a lot to talk about on today's show. We want to get into some Supreme Court stuff, really kind of from uh, what uh, Trey and Ken talked about last week, maybe our takes on a few things. Uh, the National Labor Relations Board and their thoughts on what makes a worker as opposed to a uh, contractor. Uh, Pride Month. We are in the middle of Pride Month. I want to talk a little bit about that. Uh, the Unabomber. I haven't thought about the Unabomber in a long time, but he died recently. And I think there are some interesting aspects to that and maybe even more. There is a ton of stuff. And uh, I'm I'm ready to get right into it if you are, Jay. Yeah, let's go. So, great. Okay. On last week's show, Ken suggested, Jay, that you and I were kind of operating under kind of a misapprehension uh, if you will, regarding the indictments against Donald Trump. Uh, he, he seemed to think that we argued that it would have been better for the classified documents indictment that was that came out last week to come first prior to that New York indictment that was bought, brought by Manhattan DA Alvin Bragg on those 30-some counts of falsifying business records. And, and Ken, I think, rightly pointed out that it would be improper for prosecutors to especially at different levels, to coordinate bringing charges for maximum political impact. And, and, and sure. Uh, absolutely. And, and I, was, I was never arguing that no. they should. I, I was arguing that the New York one shouldn't have been brought in the first yeah, place. Yeah, and, and that, was, yeah. that was the point I wanted to, to make. I wanted to make it clear that from my perspective and what I thought your argument was, neither of us really felt that the Bragg indictment should have been brought in the first place, which is not to say that I don't think I, I agree that Donald Trump maybe likely falsified business records, but it seems to me that under my understanding of New York law, that that would have normally for anyone not Donald Trump would have been a misdemeanor on which the statute of limitations would have run out. But what Bragg did was kind of linked it to some campaign finance stuff, turned it into like a class D or E, whatever, felony so the statute of limitations hadn't run out and it just seemed to be it seemed to rest on some awfully shaky legal ground and my point was that if you're bringing the first ever indictment against the former president you don't bring an indictment that's such a legal a novel legal theory or novelish legal right theory. sort of bootstrapped and jerry rigged yeah together yeah Exactly, which is not to say that I don't think there are some legal issues there, but yeah, and so I just wanted to make that clear that that 
it can uh, Ken's understanding I think of what you and I were arguing wasn't really what you and I were arguing, right? No. Okay. No. Yeah. All right. So moving on from that again to something that Trey and Ken talked about last week. They they discussed the Supreme Court's ruling in Allen versus Milligan. And that's that case in which the five justices said Alabama's congressional map likely violates Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. And that, of course, prohibits state practices which result in the denial or abridgment of the right to vote based on account of race or color. And I think they had a good discussion of the political implications of this, a good discussion of the extent to which the justices, um, uh, well, Ken talked about how he felt there was sort of corruption in this decision, which is, okay. Isn't there always, yeah. Well, and again, <laughs> to be clear, Ken's understanding of corruption in this sense is basing a, basing a ruling not on the law or any kind of reasonable understanding of the Constitution, but on, I guess you call it conservative policy preferences. Now, in this instance, Trey pointed out, wait a second, this is not a ruling that's in line with conservative policy preferences, right? And Ken argued, I think, that it was part of a larger effort, basically kind of a strategic concession, just wait until they come out with the ruling on affirmative action, which we thought might happen this week, didn't, and that it's just kind of to set that up, essentially. Say, so, well, we'll give them a little bit here, we'll take away a lot there. Um Trey pushed back on this, and I thought he pushed back effectively on this by pointing out that political scientists who study what's called the attitudinal model, and that's that idea that judges base their decision on personal preferences, policy goals, not the law, hasn't really been found to have the kind of explanatory power that at least Ken's argument seems to suggest, right? And we, Jay, you and I talked about this, and where even though I dis even though I agree with Ken. Uh, ideologically and in policy and a lot of things, I fundamentally disagree with him in terms of the uh, the bad faith he imputes to the conservatives on the court. And that's, the, well, we won't, we won't re-argue that. But why I'm bringing this up is because in all of what I thought was a really interesting discussion between Trey and Ken on that, what they didn't get into was the dissent in this case. And, and I think this is important because, you know, four justices, justices disagreed with this outcome. And it seems to me that whenever we have a closely divided court on a really important issue like this, I think it's oftentimes useful to take a good look at the arguments on both sides. And um, so if you're game, Jay, I thought we could do that. Yeah, let's let's uh, okay. let's walk through it. So so let's start with Justice Thomas's dissent. And this was joined by Justice Gorsuch and in part by Alito and Barrett. Now, now, Thomas sort of comes in hot, right? He characterizes this as yet another installment in the disastrous misadventure of this court's voting rights jurisprudence. Um, you don't get to sit on the bench that long with Scalia and not pick up a few things. I guess, He's seen a lot of installments, too. Yeah, You know, but I think the reason he believes it to be so disastrous is that just as Thomas feels that the Voting Rights Act calls for essentially a system of racial segregation that he sees as incompatible what he, with what he believes to be, I think what he'd call, in fact, it did and at one point refer to as a colorblind constitution, right? And more to the point, I think, he argues that Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act doesn't actually require that Alabama redraw its congressional districts in such a way that 
that black voters can control a number of seats that's roughly proportional to the black population in the state. That's kind of a judicially designed test, if you will, or a mandate, but nowhere will you find that in Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. And, and Justice Thomas says, furthermore, even if that were in the Voting Rights Act explicitly, which it is not, he believes that would be unconstitutional. Um, so I believe he's right. So, yeah, first off, I guess, would you say that that's a fair characterization of Thomas's dissent, at least the key points? And if so, what do you think about it? Yeah, no, I, I think that's a fair, uh, a fair summary. And uh, I, I think he's right on to me. I, I think the, the issue of that the Constitution somehow guarantees um, the people that look like you or have the same ancestry or same, you know, common genes or something like that uh, should have a superior claim to represent people in, in one district. Um, I, I find that troubling at a, a very basic level, right? Um, because to me, the, the that that is sort of a, a abandon all hope, all ye who enter, right? The, if, if the idea is that um, we're going to have a, a republic where people can vote uh, and they will choose uh, the best person they, they choose um, uh, as opposed to the assumption. And it's a little bit of a racist assumption, isn't it? That uh, uh, people of one race will only want to be represented by people of their same race. Now, that may, that may have been true in, uh, you know, in, uh, in the past. I don't think current evidence backs it up. Um, and this is going back, and look, I'm, I'll throw out some Ohio examples. Uh, Ken Blackwell, um, a, a, a black conservative from the Cincinnati area, um, very conservative, um, won the Ohio gov gubernatorial primary against uh, Jim Petrus, who is a sort of the more traditional, uh, and he was a Cleveland uh, ethnic uh, guy. Um, both of them good, uh, good politicians. But the idea is. Uh, the the black man won the uh, Republican primary overwhelmingly um, based on his conservative credentials. So if, if the idea is, well, these people are voting on the basis of race, well, that would seem not to be the case there. Um, well, and you that, can point yeah. to other. Now, again, if you want to talk districts and so forth, that's it's well, a little bit different. Well, but, but I think this but gets, the idea yeah. Is, is. Yeah. But if the idea is that um, we have to do this because white voters will not vote for a black man or woman. Um, I think that's a that's an incorrect assumption. And maybe it was correct at one time, but I don't think it is now. Well, and yeah, I th that gets into the uh, the, the so-called Gingles test. And this is something I wanted to raise because this uh, the court has looked at this because Section two of the voting that talks about the totality Minority majority district, right? Yeah. The totality of the circumstance. And basically, this comes from a case Thornburg versus Gingles in 1985, a unanimous court put together this three-part test for Section 2 violations. And very briefly, it's that, number one, the minority group in question has to be large and compact enough to constitute a majority in a district. Number two, the minority group has to demonstrate that it's politically cohesive, which kind of goes to your point. And number three also goes to your point. The minority group has to demonstrate that the majority votes cohesively enough to defeat the minority group's preferred candidate, right? And so that's the test the court used, and that's why, in fact, the that's why, in fact, Roberts, the, the majority upheld, or sorry, the the majority uh, ruled against uh, the, the 
the state here, Alabama here, because they felt like, well, no, what Alabama, uh, or sorry, what the plaintiffs were alleging actually met those three standards for a Section 2 violation. Now, what, what Justice Thomas essentially says is that, well, the the Gingles test, he feels like this yeah, is not, the whole thing. Out. Yeah, he yeah. basically he doesn't he doesn't quite say that, but he essentially says it's not really workable in practice. I think if someone called for it to be overturned, he'd be like, yeah, that's fine. But more broadly, Thomas just feels that if you read Section two, it doesn't apply to redistricting. It only applies to ballot access and ballot counting because he's talking it talks about specifically participation in the political process, not the design of districts. And I guess my point here is that that is not I, I I don't find myself in agreement with Justice Thomas on this. Like I don't find myself in agreement with him on a lot of things, but it is not uh an unreasonable, untied to any sort of rational understanding of the constitution of the law or legal history sort of interpretation, I guess. A reasonable person can come to this conclusion, basically, is what I'm saying. Four of them did, yeah. Yeah. And now five if you include me. Yeah, but there you go. So now Justice Alito also dissented. He joined he was joined by Justice Gorsuch in this, and his argument was a little bit different. He he argued that uh, in part when the race of one group is the predominant factor in the creation of a district that district goes beyond making the electoral process equally open to the members of the group, which Section 2 requires, but it gives the members of that group an advantage that Section 2 doesn't require and that the Constitution may forbid. In other words, you can't just throw together a bunch of minority voters to create a district that is roughly to get enough districts that are equal to the population. That district has to be reasonable, right? You can't just make this weird Frankenstein's monster sort of district. And Alito, I think, argued that, well, this district was, if you create a district just to create a race-based district, that's not okay. It can be a factor. And under Section 2, maybe in some instances it needs to be a factor. But if it is the sole factor, that is not okay if you're doing things like splitting political subdivisions, splitting up communities of interest, which have traditionally been held to be kind of the main things that you that that you're supposed to do in creating congressional districts. Yeah, yeah. No, I I think he's he's right there. Although I, I again I would be more on the fundamental Thomas uh, side of that, but um, I, I would say he's he's not wrong there either. Um, just in time. And, and, and this is just from like from the policy perspective that you and I have ticked this around that, you know, everyone argues that so much of uh, our political problems right now um, come out of uh, gerrymandering. Um, part of, you know, the, the section two is is responsible for a large bit of that that gerrymandering. Um, because it, it requires, you know, this and, and the way this this works, you know, in practice is they carve up and say, all right, we're going to give you so many majority minority districts um, uh, that that necessarily sometimes means stretching other districts out other places. Um, and and you get these, uh, you know, again, districts that that uh, you, you get more and more extreme um, because of the way you you draw them up. Um, and if we we moved away from from. Um, uh, this race allocation bit, uh, I think you would see a lot more moderate uh, competitive districts. Well, let me ask you this. I mean, that's not a legal argument. That's a yeah. policy argument. But. You alluded to this earlier. 
in, say, 1965 or 1970, do you think that this made sense as a policy prescription, putting aside any constitutional? I do. Yeah, I think I think it made more sense. And and I ask this because this gets to, you know, er, earlier in Shelby County, right, the, the court invalidated parts of the Voting Rights Act, not really invalidated, but basically said, well, you're, we don't you're, need them anymore. Well, you're basing this on data that's 40 years old or something like that. And so that that these this legislation, I don't think, was ever intended to be in place in perpetuity. Right. And and I saw reasonable people can disagree to, as to whether or not it is still necessary. That's why I think that I, I think Justice Thomas is right in that the Gingles test isn't this like clear sort of just put it into a computer model, it generates a result. But I think it's a reasonable test because if you say, well, okay, we have a minority group that is in fact large and compact enough to that have to be a congressional district or be a majority in a district and not some kind of weird, bizarro, you know, Frankenstein's monster district. Okay. And that minority, we can, that minority group can demonstrate that it is in fact very politically cohesive and that that a majority group will is also politically cohesive enough to not allow them to select the candidate of their choice. Well, if you can prove those, if you can demonstrate those two, three things, and to be clear, under this test, the burden of proof is on the plaintiff who is arguing that the districts are unconstitutional under Section 2. I'm okay with that. And that's what the majority said here is that, yeah, we applied this test. And I think that's fine. And but you know you can have a difference. Well, how cohesive is politically cohesive enough? Uh, you know, for both the minority and majority group. Well, those are subjective things, but I think they're reasonable standards. Yeah, um, I would again. Maybe this is more legislative argument, or more of a we've moved beyond. You know that this is no longer needed type type piece. Um, but yeah, I, I think you're right. Now I, I tend to fall into that on that third prong where you say. Um, you know, the, the uh, majority uh, is, is somehow preventing the uh, minorities, um, racial minorities, um, from being able to, to field candidates or, or something like that. I think that's where this whole thing just falls apart, because I, I think it just it, it just it just doesn't hold in, in the real world. Um, but that's that's not necessarily this case. Right. Uh, it's you know, you could you could knock this out on a bunch of other grounds. And um, that's sort of what Thomas and Alito did. Um, so yeah, but, but Ken must've, must've been at the secret Federalist Society meeting, uh, uh, you know, prior to this where we unveiled the plan to have, you know, sneaky justice Roberts side with the, um, uh, liberals on this one, just to kind of rope them in and give them a false sense of security. Um, so that I'm not sure what follows from that. Yeah. Well, I, um, I, I will say, <laughs> well, well, I, I will say that there, there is an internal logic. If, if you start by assuming an incredible amount of bad faith or just bad intention uh, on the part of the conservatives on the court, then it all makes sense, right? There's an internal logic to it. I just reject that basic premise. Or even if I accepted that premise, I would suggest... Well, I mean, it would also make sense to, to say that we faked the moon landing. Um, well, I think there there are different. No, I think there are different. There are like factual issues there, but but I think also then 
I would argue that it would seem weird to me that this would just be an issue for the conservative justices and not for the justices on on the left. So well, the justice on the left are the good ones, Mike. Well, yeah. So <laughs> I tend to think that, but you know, again, I. I but anyway, that's that's a whole different argument. They're not the forces of darkness who are are um, yes. Uh, to, to me, I mean, I, let's put this way: I just think that this is the idea that. Uh, the chief justice uh, and other justices presumably would, would sit around and say, you know what we should do? Let's trick them into, I'll rule on this way on the, I mean, because again, it, it just doesn't, doesn't make sense. If you have the votes, you have the votes. Um, and and the idea that somehow you're in voting on on this, that on that, that then somehow, I don't know, you vote differently separate. I, I just, I don't get the connection. Yeah, what what I'm saying is, uh, is I, I am not saying that, that Ken's position is factually wrong. We cannot know, right? But I am saying that, I'm not saying it is logically inconsistent because I, I believe it is not. I would say the burden not. of proof would, would be on Ken to prove facts that would support his claim. Exactly. And of course, there, there's no way you can do that given the the, the way the Supreme Court operates, right? And And so... That's why I'm not saying that Ken is wrong. I am just saying that I reject the fundamental premise on which his kind of system of understanding Supreme Court decision making is based. That's all. Yeah, and I, I just, I just don't understand the, again how. Again, it's not, it's not like we're we're hustling pool or something like that, right? You know, we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna throw throw a bunch of games or something like that. So then we'll lure them in and they'll bet more, and you know. It, uh, yeah, I just don't don't get it. Um, and, and apparently, also, I was going to say uh, uh, last week, uh, Gorsuch uh, played his part in the the grand scheme um, by dissenting um, on another case involved uh, Indian law. Um, so, yeah. Well, let's move on to something very different, Jay. Uh, this week, the National Labor Relations Board issued a new ruling that should well will probably make it easier for so-called gig workers to unionize. And the ruling concerns the government's test for whether a worker is an independent contractor and therefore not able to organize, as opposed to an employee, in which case they can't potentially unionize, strike, that sort of thing. And this comes out of, and all of these come in the form of NLRB rulings in, in cases in which the board, I believe it was three to one, disagreed with the Atlanta Opera which was arguing that its hair and makeup stylists who were trying to unionize were actually independent contractors and not employees. And, and there's been a back and forth here for a number of years between sort of Democratic and Republican appointee majority NLRB boards kind of about how to distinguish between employees and independent contractors. And the point of contention is what's called entrepreneurial opportunity. And this is the ability for workers to make well, more money on the job, basically, right? Um, and p- prior to the Trump administration, this was held to be uh, a consideration, but only one among several, including things like employee control of working hours, working conditions, worker supervision. But then in twenty, which is all, it was always been the traditional test between a independent contractor and an employee in, in employment law. There's a whole body of law that is out there on this, yeah. And so then 2019, uh, NLRB issues a ruling that says entrepreneurial opportunity is the core of the test and not just one factor among several. It's like the big thing that we're going to look at. 
And so what this decision does is it basically brings back the rule to what it was before that 2019 decision. And so one entrepreneurial opportunity is still a factor, but just one among among many. And, and not only that, but the NLRB also says, well, you know, we need to think about demonstrated entrepreneurial opportunity as opposed to theoretical opportunity, meaning that, you know, maybe workers could conceivably make more money in their job, but if basically none of them are doing that, then that's not real entrepreneurial opportunity. And the practical import of this means that, like I said, a lot of gig workers, rideshare, drivers, home health aides, uh, yeah, strippers even, it's going to make it easier for them to unionize. And this is a big deal because there are a lot of Americans who do gig work. I mean, there are uh, numbers vary, right? There was this 2021 Pew Research report, around 16% of Americans have earned money from an online gig platform. 2018, Gallup kind of looked at gig work more broadly and found that 36% of U.S. workers were in some way involved with it, whether it's a primary or secondary income. So this is, I think, generally seen as a, a win for a potential win for organized labor. But let's let's put the political ramifications aside. What do you think about this as just a matter of administrative ruling, administrative law, Jay? Oh, I, you know, look, I don't I don't love it. Um, but uh, I, I think it's probably within the NLRB's um, authority to do that. Um, you know, I think it's uh, to some extent is it political? Yes, of course. Um, but uh, uh, no, I, 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 I'm, I'm uh, so again. I, it's one of these things I don't have terribly strong feelings on. Um, although the the the, the stripper unionization. Um, that's going to be interesting to follow. Yeah, <laughs> we will follow it closely. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah I'm, just, I'm just, I, you know, uh, I, I think that would be a, uh, a test case to, you know, um, getting better strippers uh, uh, or, or not. Um, well, so I mean, but, but I mean, but, but, but it's, you know, we, we, we joke about that and I don't think we should, at least in some sense, because well, if you think of, no, no, if you think about the conditions under which uh, a strippers and maybe other, I think a lot of other uh, people in kind of generally the sex work industry work. The entertainment industry. Yeah. Th there can be some pretty rough conditions. I mean, it's, it's the number one is a potentially very physically demanding job where there are a lot of adverse, potentially adverse work conditions. Uh, and so, no, I, I mean, I think this is a, a group where I could see where folks might feel the benefits of unionizing for better working conditions. And to me, I feel like, yeah, certainly liberal democratic appointees are going to be more likely to support this. But as a matter of law, it just as a matter of fairness, it just makes more sense. If we're just thinking about what differentiates an independent contractor from an employee, to me, it just makes just common sense to say, well, sure, you want to consider the ability of a person to make money outside of their job. But the idea that you would elevate that to the prime or in their job to the prime factor that to me is the politically motivated thing that the NLRB did in 2019, not the previous. Yeah. No, I, I think that's I think that's a fair a fair argument. Um, yeah, I, I look. I I would say yeah. They there was a political act, and now there was a the political um, counteract uh, to it. So, um, do, you, do you think this is going to make much difference in terms of kind of the overall trends and movement we see 
to the extent we see any in, in unions? Not, not a lot. I think the, the bigger pieces, right, are obviously where you've got um, states like uh, California that, that make efforts then to try to um, uh, statutorily um, deem gig workers uh, as, as employees. Um, now, those those efforts have have uh, uh, come up short. Um, I think I'm trying to know what the status of that, but there have been a number of states. So I think, I think the bigger fight here is, is not going to be in the NLRB regulatory front. This is going to be, yeah, some of it's, it's going to happen and you'll have regulations that'll rope in, uh, more people who otherwise would have been, um, uh, 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 independent contractors, um, that'll maybe give, you know, another, you know, piece to sue on or something like that. But I think, I think the bigger fight on this is, is legislative fight. Yeah. And I agree. And of course, I, and I should, I should, it, 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 you know, note that I'm, I'm an independent contractor uh, to the politics. I guys. was to raise. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So, um, Jay is not uh, an other, employee other, of politics. Guys, LLC. There, yeah. It's, uh, 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 unite. We have nothing but our chains to, to lose here. Yeah, that would be if the, if you and you and Trey and Ken uh, tried to uh, organize and unionize, it would be headaches for me. I would, of course, would bring in the pink, I would bring in the Pinkertons, the the bus that you, right? you, you would bring in the replacement workers. You would expect, staff. yes, it would be. Oh, that'd be a lot. Of fun. All right, so let's move on to something entirely different. Again, uh, it is uh, the middle of June, right? And June, of course, is uh, we celebrate Pride Month. At least some of us do. Um, uh, and you mentioned, I think, Jay, on, on, the, was on, the, on the bonus show, actually, that uh, there was a, a big celebration in Cleveland, right? And there's celebrations sure was, all yeah. over the place. And this grew out of the 1969 Stonewall riots, which were that response to a police raid of the Stonewall Inn, which is a gay bar in lower Manhattan, I believe it was. And, and so in 1999... President Clinton formally declared the anniversary of those riots every June as Gay and Lesbian Pride Month. Now, George W. Bush, the next president, uh, didn't do that, and that was picked up again by President Obama. And then in 2011, Obama expanded the recognition to include the broader uh, LGBT community. Then President Trump uh, declined to continue that recognition, but he did semi-recognize it once in 2019 with, not surprisingly, a tweet. Uh, hey, that's kind of how Trump operated. And now uh, President Biden reinstated the practice of officially recognizing it, but now it's lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, and intersex pride month. And um, so, so yeah, there we go. And it seems to me the pattern, Jay, is clear. Uh, aside from that one tweet in 2019, Republican presidents don't recognize Pride Month, and Democrats do. And at one point, I think, well, okay, maybe that's not surprising. I mean, uh, I looked at the, some data, somewhere around 72% of LGBTQ adults identify as Democrats, only 17% as Republicans. But then I thought, well, wait a second, though. Both Presidents Bush and Trump acknowledge have proclamations had proclamations for black history month and somewhere like over 90 percent of black americans identify as democrats and so i guess i was curious about this i mean do you feel like there should be a pride month and if so do you think republican presidents should be willing to acknowledge it in at least the same kind of rhetorical way that they celebrate uh, uh black americans with black history month yeah <laughs> Again, I'm sort of a Matt on that. Um, you know, my my preference uh, 
would be that the you know government has nothing to do with this. Uh, if folks want to have a pride parade, I suppose you get the government required permit to hold the parade. Um, uh, and if uh, local officials and whatever want to show up, and uh, you know, and or national officials, uh, knock yourself out. Um, uh, have a ball. Um, I, I don't see the the. Uh, to me, again, it, it just strikes me as a little bit weird that I've I've got to have um, the government uh, blessing uh, of of uh, whatever someone's sexual preference, gender identity, whatever. Um, I don't think I, it's that. I, I mean, for I instance, let me let me give you an example. Mentality. Let me give you an example, okay. and this is where I'll give credit to I'll give credit to Donald Trump. I don't say that a lot, okay. but here was his tweet in 2019. As we celebrate LGBT Pride Month and recognize the outstanding contributions LGBTP, LGBT people have made to our great nation, let us also stand in solidarity with the many LGBT people who live in dozens of countries worldwide that punish, imprison, or even execute individuals on the basis of their sexual orientation. My administration, yeah. Yeah, my administration okay. has launched a global campaign to decriminalize homosexuality and invite all nations to join us in this effort. I, I, I think that's that's a nice statement. And and so I guess what I guess what I'm wondering is why do you is there why do you think it is that that was out of you know those number of Republican presidencies right eight years of George W. Bush and then. Four years of Donald Trump, so that's that's twelve. I can do that math in my head. Uh, uh, there was only that that one year, that one that one tweet, which I think might have actually been sort of after the fact, turned into a presidential proclamation. <laughs> sort of, I don't know, but seriously, I don't know. But I mean, no. I, look, I I think there the the argument is and has been for a while, and and people will get get mad at me, but don't get mad at me. I'm just I'm not um, uh, writing the news. I'm just reporting it. Um, I think there is a, a fair segment of Americans, particularly Republicans, um, who, from a religious standpoint, believe that uh, uh, homosexual activity and uh, uh, transgender activity and things like that are are morally wrong. Uh, you can agree with them or disagree with them, right? But um, uh, that's that's how they see it. And I mean, in a way that being black isn't morally wrong. Exactly. Right? Yeah. It's no. I mean, a, it's, yeah. yeah. It's it's that you know there it's. And again, the, I suppose if you were to ask, um, uh, you know, the people who are very religiously inclined, they would uh, inclined, uh, they would say, uh, you know, love the sin or hate the sin, uh, sort of thing. Um, Except for those people with the signs that say God hates fags, that kind of thing. Well, those guys, no, um, uh, probably not. Um, but uh, uh, you know, I, to, so to me, what I'm saying is, is if you're asking, is there a distinction uh, between? Um, Honoring one group of people, uh, you know, ethnic group, uh, racial group, their contributions to history uh, versus what some people could see as uh, honoring a lifestyle, which was with which they disagree uh, or that they simply feel um, uh, should not be accorded that same sort of, of uh, reverence observation. Um, like I've never been to a pride parade, but I've, I've seen the pictures. Um, uh, there was also, there was, there was once there was a, a, a an onion piece, uh, years ago that sort of like, you know, gay pride per, uh, parade, uh, sets back, uh, uh, gay rights agenda by decades. Um, that 
that look, a lot of people who, you know, if you have drag queens and feathers and, and, uh, uh, you know, the whole extravagant flamboyant, uh, uh, performance, uh, that a lot of people just say, look, why, why do I have to, to some extent, why does my government have to sort of salute this? Why is a, a patriot? Now, look, I, I, my thing is if, if, if you want to go great, if you want to, uh, 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 you know, be on the front of the float, uh, great. Um, but I, 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 that if you're asking me, why, why do I think there is a distinction in how, uh, presidents have have treated this. I think that's the answer, right? And because there are, there are a group of people who would say that, well, being being black or being whatever some kind of racial group or ethnic group that is a state of being you are born into that has no action component. Whereas yeah. there, there's I think like there's this there's this Catholic sort of understanding where like well it is it is there's nothing sinful about. Being, being gay, gay right. but it's acting on homosexual impulses yes. is and for whatever reason god has decided to put this test on you in the same way he puts different and i don't agree with any of this reasoning but i'm just saying this is kind of the the logic and you're saying that there are a non-trivial number of americans who agree with this logic even if i don't and that way, if you are a politician that happens to have a number of those Americans in your coalition, you're not going to necessarily do go out of your way to anger them with the statement that they will see as sort of honoring that sort of what they think of as a lifestyle choice. Yeah, exactly. And even from from my perspective, as sort of a libertarian type, uh, you know, conservative, conservative with libertarian bent, um, I, I, I look at it as uh you know, if someone I'm, if someone wants to, or or feels they're born this or whoever, right? Um, uh, again, knock yourself out. Uh, it's none of my business, and nor is it any of the government's business um, uh, to say that I ought to approve or or disapprove of it. Right. And that, I mean, it's the government's business, and in, in the extent of which, uh, uh, well, again, I you know, yeah, provide the police protection if needed, so that people don't get beat up. Yeah, absolutely. But it becomes, um, I mean, it becomes government businesses if there are different rules about whether or not same-sex couples can get married or adopt or whether yeah. or not agencies discriminate against them because sure. they are same-sex couples, that sort of thing. That's government's business. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. And that's, that's again, that's not because, uh, you know, that that's because government has been traditionally tied up in, in things like marriage. Uh, you know, it's, it, it, you know, just is, so. All right. Well, uh, let's move on to what uh, we're really kind of. Although, I mean, like, let, me, let me ask you this, though. Yeah, before you, Kareem. Um, well, while we're talking about uh, Pride Month, didn't it used to be Pride Week? Um, but but now it's uh, it's Pride Month. Hmm, is, is there a sense, because there certainly is a sense uh, uh, on the right, that is it a tad more aggressive this year than it has been in years past? I don't think so. I mean, I think maybe there are people who are, I, I, you know, I don't necessarily, I don't feel myself. And again, you know, mo most of, uh, I, I read, you know, every morning, I mean, I certainly, I look at the New York Post, the Washington Examiner, Wall Street Journal. So I look at a lot, you know, conservative media, but, you know, probably more left to center media, but I don't feel myself bombarded on social media or regular media with, with pride flags and parades and all that, you know, no one's marched through my living room or anything like that. You know, no one is forcing me to, to drink beer with pride canned sort of thing. So no, I'm right. I, no, I don't think, I don't think it's been all very right. in your face at all. Okay. So. Okay. All right. So Jay, when's the last time you thought about the Unabomber? 
Oh, it's been a while. <laughs> it takes me back, Mike. It really does. To the days of our, our good old our, days, our, wearing flannel, listening to Nirvana, reading <laughs> about the go. Unabomber. And of course, we bring him up because uh, uh, Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber, died uh, by his own hand uh, this week in federal prison, uh, age of eighty-one, I believe. And so, uh, this was going back in nineteen ninety-eight. Uh, Kaczynski he he pleaded guilty to multiple federal charges that were related to these bombings that he carried out. That targeted scientists, targeted business figures between uh, the late 70s and the mid 90s. Uh, three people ended up dead, 23 injured, I believe was the number. He was a really unusual guy. I mean, a genius level IQ, uh, a math prod- prodigy. He had degrees from Harvard, University of Michigan doctorate, taught at UC Berkeley. And then in the late 60s, he just resigned out of nowhere, moved to this remote cabin in Montana, no electricity, no running water. And, and, then he started, not too many years after that, this sort of campaign of mail bomb terror. And it was related. He's sort of a good character in a Cormac McCarthy. Yeah, he really would. Absolutely. Yeah. I, no kidding. Well, <laughs> good connection there. Um, but all of this was related to his views on modern industrial society. And these were summarized in his 35,000 word essay, Industrial Society and Its Future, usually known as the Unabomber Manifesto. And in 1995, Kaczynski sent this manifesto to a bunch of major media outlets, and he said, hey, he would desist from terrorism, in his words, if a major newspaper printed the manifesto. Now, right away, uh, Penthouse met Bob Guccione. Penthouse said, we'll do it. And and, and uh, Kaczynski, yeah, Kaczynski said, actually, I want someone a little more respectable than Penthouse. So and eventually the New York Times and the Washington Post, after they consulted with the FBI, they jointly published the manifesto and what it, it basically it argued that modern industrial society has had serious negative consequences for human happiness, human freedom. It's significantly harmed the environment and that radical action is needed with violence as a key component of that action to kind of wake people up about what's happening. And his view was that the quicker we can force the collapse of this system, which will collapse inevitably anyway, the better off we'll be. Because the longer modern industrial technological society continues, the worse the damage both to humans and to the environment is going to be, uh, not just because it's continuing on, but also when it inevitably collapses. And weirdly, maybe weirdly, I don't know, his influence has actually continued into the present. In recent years, there's been a, like a resurgence. We are still today. Yeah, I mean, uh, you'll, you could find on, on – Radical right groups, people calling him Uncle Ted and using this kind of romantic, romanticization, is that a word? I don't know, of this kind of uh, rural, non-technological life. They kind of tied it into this weird white supremacism sort of thing. And there's also an element on the radical environmental left that kind of embraces his thinking. And, and Jay, I mean, I I know that you and I agree that his methods, totally deplorable, right? We are We are forced strongly against terrorism, mail bombing, all that sort of thing. But we are. We yep. are. <laughs> no question here. But what do you think about his message? I mean, that, 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 that clearly, because like I said, it is it attracts people on both the far left and the far right. Do you think there's anything that we can pull out of Kaczynski's method or message, uh, not his method, that's worthwhile? <laughs> no, I think he was an absolute nut. Um. I mean, it's that sort of a maybe a simplistic answer, but um, uh, no, I, the, the, he was. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I mean, 
I'm not sure. I'm not sure how much you need to elaborate on to say the Unabomber was nuts. See, I don't um, think he was nuts. I I, I disagree. I, I think he right. was. I think his reasoning was deeply the flawed. Unabomber makes a lot of good points. No, I think yeah. I mean, I, I think he did. I, I think uh, when I as I read the manifesto, I, I I find myself agreeing with a lot of it. I think where I disagree is that his argument is that the. Uh, the negative consequences of modern industrial society outweigh the positive benefits. I disagree with that. I think as he points out right. these negative consequences, I say, yeah, that's a negative consequence. I agree. The right. modern surveillance. How about antibiotics? State, yeah. Well, I, I agree that the modern surveillance state is, can be really disturbing when it comes to human freedom and, and liberty, right? I agree that things like social media and, you know, which, you know, he, it's kind of prescient and you talk about some of the effects of technology and uh, worker alienation. I see all this stuff. So, yeah, these are bad things. But when I weigh the balance, I say, but in balance, I think, and I'm sure antibiotics, all of the things, I think, no, uh, the advantages outweigh the disadvantages. But I also think there are some reforms would be better, but I do not think that uh, a campaign of violent terror is the way to do it. And so that's why I think just dismissing him and saying, well, the Unabomber was nuts and he had no good ideas. No, I think he had a lot of he made a lot of valid points, but he goes off the rails at some at some point pretty clearly. And that's kind of how I see the Unabomber. Well, you can you can say that a lot about about anybody. I mean, look, to say, um, hey, uh, I think. Um, we should be cautious uh, in how we treat the environment. Um, I'm concerned about, you know, runaway technology. Um, yeah, those are all all good observations. Um, but it doesn't change the point that, you know, so it, it's sort of a matter of, well, a stop clock being uh, right twice a day. Um, just just because uh, he may share some concerns or, or say, um, you know, look. So you know, let's let's go let's go back to the 1950s and the um, uh, John Birch Society, um, who were tremendously worried about uh, communists and communism. And the like he's a communist, yeah, that kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. So I I very much would agree. Communism was a big problem. Uh, the spread of communism was a big problem. Um, the totalitarianism of of uh, Stalin uh, and the the communist regime of the time. Uh, was horrific, and it presented a a it was a tragedy for the Russian people, a tragedy for a lot of people around the world, and it was a a national security threat um, uh, to the United States. That said, John Birch Society was still nuts um, in that you know they were they were seeing communists be behind every tree, uh, and the the you know the proposed solution you know which I think it's I think it's difficult to to break the someone from the the um say, say you go to a doctor right um and the doctor perhaps gets the diagnosis exactly right um but has a a a really sort of horrific prescription yeah, drink bleach um <laughs> you've got, you go back yes you've got okay, COVID, drink looks bleach. like you got some covid here take some bleach um it, it's hard to it's hard to distinguish and say like well that's a really good doctor because you know you got the you got the uh, diagnosis correct um uh, you know, I've I've often made the, the same argument about uh, Marx, right? Um, uh, Karl, not not Karl, <laughs> but you know, the idea that you know uh, he he his diagnosis of that there are haves and haves nots and and uh, 
so forth in society. Um, he's completely right. Uh, his prescription to how to fix that problem is completely wrong. Um, and, and therefore, I would say, uh, yeah, fair. yeah, yeah. Not, so, so that's, yeah, okay. that's how I, I okay. look at this is, is that you can't necessarily separate, you know, just because, um, you know, I mean, um, I see Hitler, so, was yeah, a, it, Hitler was a vegetarian, Mike. But I mean, obviously that wasn't part of his, you know, kind of overarch, but I see your point. Oh, yeah, it was. But, yeah, it sort of was. Uh, I mean, there was sort of this whole bodily purity. purity and, kind of, yeah, and, maybe, you know, maybe, maybe yeah. so. Maybe so. Yeah. But I, I guess I see what you're saying in that, in that even if uh, these people, these groups bring up issues that are worth highlighting and talking about, it becomes so difficult to disentangle the awful parts from the good parts that you risk doing more harm than good by using them as a vehicle to raise yeah. awareness. Well, and also there's there's a whole lot of, of, of people that if you've ever had conversations with, um, they'll start with sort of, you know, some unremarkable premise. And again, let's, let's you know, just like the John Birch kind of thing, like, geez, um, you know, what's going on in Eastern Europe is horrible. Yeah, I agree. Uh, they just marched into Hungary. Yeah. Uh, I've heard they've got spies in the, in the State Department. Yeah, they do. That's that's pretty bad. Um, you know, you know, I think Bob next door is a communist. Uh, you know what I mean? Sort of, <laughs> uh -huh, yeah. You start you start getting, you know, that that sort of I think that's it's always easy to to get sort of trapped in that um, with the the first couple of propositions that say, yeah, that that seems uh, reasonable enough. And then you get to the wait, what? Um, and I think that's kind of where you know, with the Unabomber. So, so to say, I guess that's my thing is I, I don't tend to give uh, people credit for, look, they started off with some good ideas, just went off the tracks. Um, I tend to look at where did they end up uh, off the tracks? Um, there was also, it reminds me, Mike, of there was the, the hilarious, um, this was before we even had really had internet memes, right? People just sort of circulated stuff uh, by email. Uh, and I suppose there were web pages, right. That, that had this stuff, but it was the, the game of the, uh, uh, Al Gore or the Unabomber? I don't um, recall that. Remember those? Okay, huh? It was sort of they would have the the quotations. Oh, got it. it. Okay, like, yeah, okay, yeah. Is this, uh -huh. is this come from Al Gore's Earth in the Balance, or is it from the Unabomber? Manifesto? I do remember that now. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, and also as a conservative, yeah, we kind of look at it, it that way. That um, I, I I certainly would would agree that uh, kind of like Donald Trump or Adolf Hitler kind of thing, basically. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Gotcha. Um, uh, you know, that you can say uh, uh, environmental um, uh, awareness and taking care of the environment is important. Um, is it, you know, but but disagree with sort of the primacy that that uh, uh, these people would put on on that issue? Well, let's close by talking about the presidential election. I mean, OK, we have 16 months to go. Right. But. The candidate field, I think, is really filling out just this last week. Uh, Miami Mayor Francis Suarez, right, he announced he was entering the race. And if you're counting, and I am, that uh, has 12, we are 12 major uh, Republican declared candidates, and there are only three on the Democratic side. We have kind of one prominent third-party candidate. Uh, Cornell West uh, this week announced he would be seeking the Green Party's presidential nomination. There's some other party he's also seeking the nomination of sort of thing. But now I want to be clear. I specified major candidates because all you have to do to be a declared candidate is file some paperwork with the FEC. Jay, you right. might recall back in 2016. You were a candidate at one time. Or you were, I you were trying to become a candidate. I was, in fact. Yeah. And at this point, 941 people have filed their paperwork, including 145 Democrats, 262 Republicans, and five communists. Now, 
Now, if you break that down, though, only 43 of them have receipts of over $200. So that's kind of when you, I mean, it costs nothing basically to do it. Now, I think it's fair to say that the Democratic contest isn't really a contest, right? The, the only real interest there is on the Republican not side. Yeah, it's not going to be. But well, no, I mean, I, I would, I would, uh, I would argue it's it's uh, one sandbag away. But go ahead. Okay, f- fair enough. Fair, I mean, yeah. oh, there's always something that can happen, right? To the essentially unopposed. I mean, we're not going to have anti-vax RFK Jr. or Marianne Williamson. You know, they're they're not going to get any significant numbers. Right, given numbers. yes, given the current state of play, yeah, but yeah. So let's look at the Republican side, though. I mean, like I said, we have, I would say, twelve major candidates now, or at least, you know, significant candidates. When you look at this pool, what is it, what does it tell you? What do you see? What are your thoughts on uh, uh, what, if anything, this tells you about uh, the Republican Party and the presidential race? I think it tells me there there is still an appetite for a non-Trump Republican. Um, there's There's two versions of that. One would be sort of the uh, Trump-flavored Republican, like uh, Ron DeSantis, right? Um, that you can bill yourself as, hey, I'm, I'm Trump without the indictments. Um, uh, and then there are the, the folks who would be the more traditional conservative, uh, for example, Tim, Co- Tim Scott, who is sort of running um, in the hope, growth, and opportunity kind of, kind of lane. Um, which is kind of where I tend to come out with those sort of the lane Marco Rubio um, uh, tried to occupy sort of unsuccessfully. Uh, there's, there's the Mike Pence, which is the more traditional establishment conservative uh, with a, with a splash of Jesus uh, kind of thrown in. Um, uh, and, and then there's, uh, you know, again, Chris Christie, which is sort of like a, um, I guess maybe he's sort of in the DeSantis type lane, right. Of the, uh, Trumpy without the indictments, although he's got a specific anti-Trump sort of animus built in, um, and, and we'll see how that that plays out. I've I've long said that I think Trump is sort of um, his own animal, and it's kind of I think he's worn out as welcome with a lot of uh, uh, of the party uh, just on the you know this is sort of a Trumpian thing of winners win. Um, and he hasn't. He's been delivering a whole slate of losses for a long time. Um, so however fervently he believes in the cause, however much he yells about it, however much he's persecuted, and I think he is persecuted, um, that doesn't mean he ought to be the nominee. Um, so. but, but I mean, it seems to me that he, I, he, he almost certainly well, I mean, there, there are 12, sure, there are 12 candidates, right? But I mean, there are only really maybe four, maybe five who are going to do anything whatsoever. And it just feels to me yeah, like it's, it's, it's Trump DeSantis. And then maybe, maybe sort of like a Scott, maybe somebody, and, somebody coming out of the, the Scott, Scott or, Haley, uh, or Chris, Haley. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, Haley. it just seems to me there's a, there's an inevitability to Trump, especially in a, in a crowded field like this, where there's no question that if all of these folks, Donald Trump has the strongest and most committed core of supporters. And the more you split up that field, especially given how the Republican primary rules work, the easier it makes the path for Donald Trump. Yeah, but nobody's voted yet. Nope, nobody's voted yet. And, That's and, true. And the fundraising is just beginning. 
And I do think I do think there's going to be a a movement of Republican funders, the more traditional Republican funders, um, are going to sort of have to say, look, we got to pick a horse and we got to pick a horse early. And I don't think that time's come yet, but I think it's coming. And do you expect when that happens, they're going to pick a horse that's not Trump and that's going to. Yes. Yeah. And then when I say horse, I mean, non non Trump horse. Um, and and look, Trump's going to have some money. Uh, he's got personally, but he's going to be tied up with a whole lot of other stuff. So, so then you don't necessarily, I guess you would disagree with me. I, I see him as the prohibitive favorite and you would say maybe not so much. Um, I'm trying to look down the road. I'm, I'm trying sure. if, if, yeah, yeah. if it's one of those, if you, because again, it's, it's one of those, you know, uh, don't skate to where the puck is, skate to where the puck's yeah. going. Uh-huh. Right. Um, and if you're asking me to skate to where the puck is, I say, well, Trump obviously has the prohibitive lead at this point. Um, as to where it's going, I don't know that he does. I, I think things look different six months from well, now. Well, let me ask you this, because I think it would be unfair for me to say, well, if not Trump, who? Uh, but if, if I say sort of uh, if you were a betting person, if I said Trump or other than Trump as the nominee, and that kind of covers anything that could happen, essentially, would you put your money on Trump or other than Trump? I, I I would say other than Trump, but it's close. Okay. I, I, I would say. I mean, I'd say like a 55, 45, you know, that sort of thing. I think it's close. Okay. That, um, that's fair. But but we've got a, but we've got a while to go. And I, that's I do true. think there's going to be somebody who's going to make the case for winnability of, of, look, of all these people in the field, there's one person that Joe Biden has defeated. Right. <laughs> That's true. Um, well, they <laughs> would uh, say, no, nobody, actually, he didn't. Yeah, well, exactly. No. Or he tried to defeat him, at least. Um, but most people would would uh, uh, argue that that, look, if and there's just sort of some some basic math that Trump will need to beat Biden. Trump needs to get more votes than he got last time. And I don't see the path to do that. There is certainly a, oh, my God, not Biden kind of caucus. and. Maybe, but I, I don't think it's it's that strong among Democrats. I think they'll still vote Biden against Trump, uh, no matter what. Um, so he has to get more Republicans or more independents, and I don't see. No, I, I don't. I, well, I hope you're right about that, but I. Yeah. But that's yeah, a whole other issue, and there's still a long way to go. But I, I yeah. guess I, I certainly would feel a lot better about state of American democracy and the Republican Party if, say. Tim Scott were the nominee, uh, as opposed to sure. I don't know. Uh, you know, I, I think you you obviously would would, would too. So I, that that to me would indicate a return to something more like what I would consider a non-Trumpy, non-populist sort of still conservative. And I disagree with on a lot of issues, Republican Party, but one that I think is not going in what I consider to be a fundamentally wrong direction. And again, I'm 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 weird in that I'm still sort of you know perhaps the last you know Jack Kemp Republican type. Um, but, but Tim Scott would, would fall into that. Absolutely. That, yeah. So, you know, and some people, some people, you mentioned that, the the Trump Biden thing and and talk about uh, two really unpopular candidates, right? I think it's going to be Trump Biden. And if so, we'll once again, for the third time in a row, I think have two incredibly unpopular people running for president. I, I mean, all right. A majority of Americans, a majority even of Democrats don't want Biden to run again. But even so, they should should do something about it. But but even so, Trump 
still slightly trails Biden in head-to-head polls. And so, I mean, I guess so. a lot of people are looking at this and saying, well, if there were ever a moment for a serious third-party, no-labels type of presidential candidacy, this is it. And in fact, no nabel, no, no nables, no labels is spending, I think, something like around $70 million in their what they call insurance policy 2024 campaign to get ballot access in every state. Now, they're saying right now they will not nominate a candidate to run on those on those ballot lines unless three criteria are met. Number one, neither major party nominee supports the no labels agenda. Number two, based on rigorous polling, the majority of Americans want an alternative to Trump, Biden. And number three, there's a viable path to an electoral college victory for what they call a no labels unity ticket, which they define as a a president and vice president, not of the same party unless they're both independents. Now, it seems to me. Of course, number three is really the only real one. Yeah, because of course, we're not going to number one and two are automatic. But because number 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 one or two, you can always just sort of adjust your agenda to whoever you want. Uh, and you can determine how rigorous the polling uh, needs to be. Yeah, but but uh, I would say that conclusion. I would say even with no kind of gaming of number one and two, those two are almost certain to be met. But number three, I find that incredibly difficult to envision. I mean, so let let's talk about what the most uh, potentially vote getting no labels ticket would be. You're talking probably like uh, uh, maybe a. Joe Manchin is the person who's most often mentioned, right, as the Democrat. Maybe you pair him with Ben Sass or Glenn Youngkin or or, or, or Kirsten Cinema or, or, or I, I could I could vote for a a Manchin Sass or a Manchin Youngkin ticket. Yeah, you could, I I could right? Yeah. And I think, but that's the point is that that would maybe you could see a ticket like that maybe getting to. Perot, Ross Perot levels of support, right? In 1992, Ross Perot won 19% of the popular vote, uh, but he won no electoral votes, essentially. Yeah. And in fact, the last time a non-major party candidate won any electoral votes was uh, segregationist George Wallace. He was running as a candidate of the American Independent Party in 19. 68, I think, and he won 46 electoral votes. So it seems to me, I I guess I'm not really clear as to what No Labels thinks it's doing. Or there are some folks saying, why would you support this group when essentially that third category is just not going to happen, given how our system is structured? Wouldn't it be better to put your time and energy and support into something that actually has a, a real chance of Occurring, and I think they're right. They, they, they're arguing it's sort of like a uh, employment uh, opportunity for these kind of old Clinton era political analysts, and that's kind of the folks that are running this thing. And I think, yeah, it, it really it seems like a movement without a purpose. Well, there's always there. I'm not to, to cast aspersions on on these folks. So I, I, I think their motives, are, I think, are probably pure. But there's also one of those that, um, look, you're they're. They're getting paid. Uh, you know yeah. what I mean? There's, oh, yeah, yeah. There, this is, this is, there's money to be had uh, and uh, editorials to be written and TV appearances to be made um, off of this. Um, you know, where you go around and say, look, I'm, I'm definitely patriotic and this is the right thing to do and all that kind of stuff. And um, does it really get you anywhere? No, or, or really get the, the move the ball in terms of ideologically what you're trying to do. 
no, but it's a lot of fun and, and uh, you maybe make some money along the way. So I think there's there's that. Yeah, I, I think um, it's no different. I, I, I tend to agree. Look, the, the only time the only time a third party thing came close to working. Um, and this is, I think, the, the type of person you, you need to have. And, and I don't see that person um, would be the election of 1912. Right. Absolutely. Where, where you My hero. Teddy Roosevelt come out of retirement. Yeah. Um, you can say there was sort of something like this um, uh, in 1952 when the uh, Republican Party drafted Eisenhower, yeah. right? Um, mm-hmm. That there was sort of some ideological skirmishes here and there. But look, I- Ike was a hero. Um, everybody loved him. He was, uh, you know, pretty pretty moderate sort of uh, easygoing guy. And um, uh, yeah, there was there was that sort of. But I, I don't see, you know, maybe. Um, you know, back in 2000, was it 2000 uh, or, or maybe uh, 2000? You know, I mean, Colin Powell's name was circulated, that kind of thing. Um, but of course, he's he's deceased. Um, would not make a good candidate for that reason. Yeah. yeah so, yeah, um, it would be tough to campaign for him. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he could stay in his basement, though. Um, but, I, you know, so I, I you know, if, if there were some other of that type figure, right, uh, someone who w- is well known, has been in government, because I don't think the Ross Perot thing works, right? The, the outsider businessman uh, going to get under the hood kind of thing. Um, who's the Starbucks guy? His, his maiden name Howard Schultz, past, yeah. But that, yeah, that never really got going. Um, uh, I, I don't so I don't see that sort of. Um, I mean, Perot would have done better if he hadn't been kind of crazy. I mean, <laughs> you, know, well, you, you can say that about anybody, though, Mike. Can't you? I mean, but I guess I, you know, there are some people who would say, well, maybe there's a scenario where Donald Trump doesn't actually one of the one of the things that you hope will happen with the party happens and he's not the nominee. And then he decides he he, he declares, of course, that the entire GOP primaries was rigged. And he should have won. He runs as an independent. Now, that's an independent who you could potentially see maybe picking up a few electoral votes here or there. Yeah, exactly. But it it is just it's so hard to run as an independent. Which is why Um, which is why we need ranked choice voting. Because now, oh, I suppose. now but, but no, the follow I'm my logic. now more than ever. But, uh. <laughs> but no, I mean, like for instance, I would be all for this no labels thing in Alaska, Maine, or Nevada because they have ranked choice voting. And so, hey, if you want to vote for, you know, the uh, uh, the, the mansion SAS ticket, go ahead and do that because if your second choice then is, you know, whatever it is, well, that's going to. But that at least registers, and so that's the whole. I mean, one of the big points of ranked choice voting, and you could see. This is kind of how I my best case scenario where enough states adopt this, where all of a sudden these minor parties kind of are get enough publicity and votes and funding over time. And we're talking the course of a generation or more where they can actually build up the support and the infrastructure to be real challengers, at least at the presidential level to the major parties and then you maybe have a shot at breaking the two-party duopoly that's dominated American politics since the Civil War. But absent that, I don't really see any other mechanism through which that's going to happen. Well, I, I, I suppose I, I see other mechanisms. Yeah, I, I think I could see other mechanisms. I think it's, it's doubtful. But uh, again, I, I, I would argue that I don't think ranked choice voting um, is the necessarily fixes that that problem. It's sort of the you know, you can get you can get the beef, the salmon, or the chicken, and uh, sort of then the result is shut up. Everybody gets the chicken. Um, 
So I don't know. I'm just. Uh, yeah. Well, we, we, we have had and we won't get into that, but right. especially at this at this point. Whole other thing. Yeah. Whole other thing. And, and we have a we have a basic disagreement about that. But uh, but yeah. So in the end, though, I think we do agree on that. There is a, a approximately a zero likelihood of a non-Democrat or Republican being the next president of the United States. I wouldn't say zero. Approximately I, I zero. Would say, I would say less than 10%. Approaching zero. Approaching zero. Approaching yeah. zero. All right. Well, I will take that note of agreement. Yes. And we'll, we'll close actually on that note of agreement. And thank you for listening. If you're not already a supporter, we hope you consider becoming one. If you are, you get ad-free versions of all the shows we put out. You get our full supporters midweek show. You only get a preview of that if you're not a supporter. There's our Discord group, which is always a lot of fun. And then, of course, the $10 a month above or more. There is also that opportunity to be part to be a part of that midweek show, at least when JRR doing it as it goes on. And so that's that's a lot of fun, too. To check it all out, just go to patreon.com slash politics guys. You can also support us on Venmo or at politics guys or through PayPal. And as always, the support links, you can find them in the show notes as well as at politicsguys.com slash support. And whether you're a supporter or not, it really does help us out if you talk up the show, share episodes, uh, subscribe, rate and review. You know, let, let folks on social media know that you like the politics guys. They should listen to the politics guys as well. And also, if you'd like to get the midweek show, but you're not in the position to financially support us, not a problem. Just send me an email, mike at politicsguys.com, and I will make sure you get access to the full midweek supporters show. And as always, we really appreciate all of our listeners, but a special thanks to our fantastic executive producing team. Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Andra Masker, Daniel Toe, Ryan Beasley, Don Oglesby, and Ivan English. We'll be back with a new episode for you next week. We hope you'll join us.